0: Mark chapter 9, we're going to pick it up in verse number 1. Again, so glad to see you guys. Hope you are well today. Uh, And if you're new, uh, I'd love to connect with you, me or one of the other pastors, after the service and just say hi to you. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, here we go. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse number two says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice comes out of the cloud and speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to not to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what does this rising from the dead might mean? And they asked him, why do the scribes say the first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. I want to just pray one more time over the reading of God's word and ask him to help us through this. Um, interesting, intriguing passage. Uh, now, God, we have uh, we come to you yet again, and we ask you to help us, and we ask you to uh, be glorified or be magnified or be made known above all things. Um, we pray that you would help us as we go through uh, your word. Uh, I do pray for those who may have come in here. they they've kind of looking for something new, some deep revelation. God, thank you that you have just given it to us. It's called the word of God. And we just pray God, that you would um, allow us not to just be hearers of what was just said but doers of it also and when we leave here, may we all collectively say how glorious and great is our King Jesus in Jesus name amen now i've got to <laughs> I've, I've got to preface preface this if I can um, and just add a few little denotes here uh, that this passage is a very, very intriguing passage, especially. If you are new to the faith, if you are new to the faith, and this is the first time you heard that some brother man went up on top of a mountain and was transfigured, that's likely terrifying, and you're probably thinking to yourself, why on earth did I just come into a room and sit down and hear a man talk about some kind of uh, transformer taking place in an old ancient book, right? I mean, let's just be honest, that... uh, on the outside, without a faith lens, without a lens from uh, uh, maybe growing up in church, uh, that's what that looks like. Some weird mess that even Mark doesn't even spend time on describing what just happened. And so we've got to allow ourselves to kind of figure out, all right, what's happening? And, And the rules of hermeneutics is allow the scripture to interpret itself. So we're going to try to do that. I want you to notice, Verse 1, because in verse 1, many people would say that that should have tied with chapter 8. But I'm going to explain to you why that shouldn't have. Now, verse 1, again, it says, And he said, Truly I say to you that some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That should conclude chapter 8. And I'll explain that in just a second. But first, let me just explain this. All right? have got a lot of explaining to do with this passage, right? In and I, I believe it is 1227. The Archbishop of Canterbury was the first person who had the idea, or maybe he was talking with other people. Let's put numbers with the actual text so that it's easier to find. Let's just say John three sixteen. So then they put in chapter numbers. They put in verses and then it wasn't until maybe 150 years after when the wyclef english bible took on these numbers and chapters so when the bible was originally written we there there were no numbers right it was just a flow of stories, just continuously flowing. In fact, when the ancient church would read letters like Philippians or Colossians or Galatians or Romans, they wouldn't be like, all right, everybody turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 3. No, they'd be like, we're gonna sit here together and read the entire letter. Now I know some of you just got really nervous, right? Because one day that's what we're gonna do. Like, and and they are just on and they're just soaking all of this in. So with that in mind, so, so I, think, I think the archbishop got it right. Verse number one in chapter nine is exactly where it needs to be. Now, let me give you the context behind that. If we can dial back our brains just a few months ago and remember about chapter eight, Peter makes a huge confession. All right, it's like finally the light bulb comes on on Peter. I'm going to hate on Peter in just a few minutes. But, but in chapter eight, like Peter gets it right for just a second. In his confession and who the Christ is, Jesus remember, asked them the question, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter's like, "Oh, you are the Christ." And boom! Peter! Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to imagine all the other disciples were like, "Oh, Pete, He finally got it right. And P- Jesus, and they lock in sync together. He finally gets his theology right in who Christ. Because prior to this, who knows who Jesus is? The, the demons. They're the only ones who have somewhat of a decent theology. Finally, Peter gets in sync with who Christ is. But that's not the end of the story. You've got to think that this story ends really well. But then Jesus begins to talk to them about the suffering, about the cross, and about the resurrection. And he talks to them about the suffering that is to come. And then in light of that, in verse number one, he tells them, but I tell you this, that some of you will get a glimpse of my glory before you die. What what is Jesus doing right here? What is Mark the writer trying to communicate? Remember, to some Christians who are in Rome, likely being heavily persecuted, that despite suffering, glory will always come after. Despite you going through what you are going through, for those who are in Christ, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your eternal reward is glory with him. And so what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to encourage these brothers is he's going to tell them, I'm going to give you just a taste and just a glimpse of that glory before you are persecuted, before you are found in your suffering. And so he, then he goes on, and there's going to be just a few things in here that I think can teach us from the transfiguration, can teach us as followers of Christ what this all means. The first thing I want you to look at is this, this is the glory of God on full display. This is the glory of God on full display. The transfiguration is the most unique event, or one of the most unique events outside of the incarnation, outside of the resurrection. This is the most unique event that takes place in the life of Christ. So unique that Mark really doesn't say much about it. He just gives us two facts, right? The first thing he talks about is that there was some kind of heavenly vision. You look back at verse number two. Jesus takes the boys back up and he leads them to a high mountain. He had just predicted his death to them. And he leads them up this mountain. And so here's what's happening. In Luke's account, the disciples are sleeping. And they're awakened by this glorious beaming light. His radiant face is what Luke says. And so now Jesus is praying. He's transfigured. And this word here is very difficult to translate. We, we, we can kind of translate it as Metamorphosis. Now, I got, I, got to, I got to do some, some work here, because for some of us, the, it was a long time ago in a, another galaxy far away when we were in science class, and we learned the term metamorphosis. Now, if you were me in high school learning about metamorphosis, you were probably sleeping, okay? Let's just, let, I'll just be straight with you, okay? I barely made it out of high school, but here I am today. God is great. Um, and so, so you learn about metamorphosis, and how did you learn about Metamorphosis. The butterfly. Right? You watch the caterpillar. Well, you don't watch it because you'd be there for like hours and your eyes would probably burn out your brain. Like like you're just sitting there and the caterpillar goes in the cocoon and, and then like you come back to class, you know, sometime later. I don't even know how long it takes. That's how schooled I am. And then like you come back sometime later and, and then what what where where where'd the caterpillar go? There's it it was a metamorphosis. That's the, the effect of it. It didn't disappear. It's, it's, it's something brand new. Now now this is very interesting, because Jesus did not become something that he wasn't. OK? Jesus didn't change from something human to something divine in, in that regard. In the birth of Jesus, that was more of a metamorphosis, because Jesus had already been divine for all of eternity, and the act of the and um, the act of him becoming a baby, he was transfigured into a human being. Now, this word, metamorphosis, is where Paul uses. In a way, in Romans chapter twelve, two it says, do not be conformed by this world, but be what? Remember, transformed, same word, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. He uses it again in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are what? Transformed from one state of glory to the next state. The Lord works in us so that we will become something that we are not. That's a good way of interpreting this word metamorphosis. You and I, outside of Christ, are dead in our sins and our trespasses and our transgressions, and then Christ makes us alive. Then we are transformed into something we were never. And that's not Christ. Because Christ was divine for all eternity. And what is happening here in this transfiguration is Christ, the deity, the glory, the revealing of his glory is being shown through his skin so that the disciples now see Jesus for who he was for all of eternity. It wasn't that Jesus is saying, this is what I will become. This is Jesus saying to those boys, this is who I've been for all eternity. He is transfigured and giving them a glimpse of his glory. Matthew's account, actually, Matthew chapter 17, and his account of this, actually says that it was his face that was shining brighter than the sun. I mean, you can just imagine, like, you know, like, if you're a light sleeper, like me, like, uh, okay, I'm not a light sleeper. If you are asleep and then, like, some bright light, like, shines on you, like, That that's terrifying. You feel it, you get it, like it's going to waken you up, right? And this is exactly what the disciples were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be praying, they're asleep. Good Lord, we find this over and over through the New Testament. And and they're 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 awakened by this bright light. It's the glory of God being revealed to them. And then it's so interesting because it wasn't just his face shining. Mark denotes something else that was happening. His clothes were they were brighter than any bleached. Clothes like Mr. Clean couldn't get these clothes cleaner than what they were. Like in ancient, you gotta understand in ancient times they didn't have washing machines like we do. You know, like, like you get you can step outside in the in, in the Cedar City wind, and you immediately get dirt, you get dirt in your hair, you get, I mean, there's dirt in your eyeballs, dirt in your mouth, dirt all over your clothes, dirt on your shoes, and it's all tracked all throughout your house. Well, I mean, you just clean up, put load in the washing machine, and it's clean. But not in the ancient world. Mark is like denoting like now, what, is this, what is this saying? This is, this is saying to us that it's so white. Jesus was so pure. He was so holy. And he was so righteous. This, that's what this white is telling us. I love in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Hebrews tells us the writer there says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and we upholds and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you want to see God? You look at Jesus. Do you want to know who God is? You know Jesus. Do you want to receive salvation from your sins? You come to Jesus. Jesus is displaying. And not only is he giving them just this glimpse of his glory by kind of revealing this heavenly vision, but he's also giving them a couple of, we got some visitors on the scene that we got to address. Right? How? And, and we don't know. How is it that Moses and Elijah suddenly appear? We, we don't know. Maybe we don't know the complete answer to that, but we know that they were there for a reason. Moses, think about this. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. These two had significant impact in the Old Testament in pushing and advancing the redemptive plan of God they also had two very weird departures remember the story of moses he dies and no one was there to bury him who buried moses remember the story god did god took his bones and buried them god was the pallbearer of moses and what about okay you think that's weird well what about elijah all right now i again i just i welcome you to church and welcome you to Christianity. Some of these things are supernatural, and we're just thinking, like, how did this happen? Elijah, he didn't die. The Bible records that he was caught up in the air. (laughs) Now, if I can just, can I just say something in passing that this is an affirmation of (laughs) not to get any more weird about something, but this is also an affirmation of the afterlife. Moses and Elijah appear. They didn't come from purgatory. If you believe that, I don't believe that. They they weren't spirits. They came from where? Heaven. They were in the presence of God. And now they come down, and here they are in the presence of God in flesh. And they're having a conversation. And this conversation is going to not just give us a glimpse of the deity, the complete glory of Jesus, but we're also going to get a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus because what are they talking about? Well, Mark doesn't really elaborate on it, but the other Gospels do. That's why I say if we want to interpret this particular passage, we're going to interpret it based off of what the Bible has to say. And so in and so and, and, and Luke, it tells us, they were talking about what? I found this on the web. Shut up. They were talking about... They, they were, something awkward is always going to happen to me. It just, I, I don't, just pray for me. Luke is going to talk about, in chapter 9, they talk about Jesus' departure. So what are they talking They're talking about the cross of Christ that is right before Jesus. And what are they there for? They are there to minister to Jesus and to listen to Jesus. you got to imagine if you are Moses and you are Elijah, you have been hearing about this redemptive plan and being a part of this redemptive plan, and you've been listening about this coming Messiah. And, and, And finally, there they are. They're talking to Jesus about what is about to transpire. And I, I think this is pretty fascinating because when you think about Elijah, he was taken up from Jerusalem, and here he is back down in this town. And you, you think about Moses, who never stepped foot in the Promised Land in Israel. And Moses, you got you got to think like some. If I'm Moses, I'm like, hey, I finally made it. Just took a couple thousand years, but here I is. I'm I'm finally here. And you would think that this has got to be a part of their conversation. Like, man, do you remember? Like God like, told me I couldn't go to the promised land, and so I just sit here on the mountain and watch everybody else go, and I'm going to die, and he's going to bury my bones somewhere, and here I am. You would think they've got a lot to talk about. But what did they talk about? The cross of Christ. And if, if, if I were in the South, I'd say I can preach that for just a second. Because some of us, we think that the cross of Christ is some elementary doctrine and we've got to get past the cross, pastor, so that I can go into deep waters of my faith. These two jokers, these guys are heavy hitters of our faith. And they're not talking about some deep divine revelation. They're not talking about, hey guys, you remember that time I took that staff? (laughs) Like, you know, we parted the waters. I mean, that's what you would think when you got two ridiculous guys. They're talking about all these big things they've done. You guys remember the plagues? That's <laughs> pretty cool. I mean, dude, they're just they, they're so immersed with the presence of Jesus, and they they get a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus that they're talking about the suffering and the cross of Christ. And then not only do we see the glory of God on full display, but it's also confirmed in such an interesting way. Verse five, Peter, here we go, Peter. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Uh, Let's make some tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he did not know. I I love that Mark puts that right there. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So if you don't know what to say when you are terrified, what's the best thing to say? Shut your mouth. It's, (laughs) I mean, I mean, it is not hard. When you up in an adult conversation, children, and you think you got something so profound to say, and yet it comes out like garbage, just keep your mouth closed. Peter's at the grown folk table. He's thinking, I have to say something here because, ooh, look, it's Moses. Ooh, look, it's Elijah. Peter's trying to confirm something here that should not be confirmed. Peter is trying to prolong an experience that should not be prolonged. Because if this experience is prolonged, what happens next in your header in the gospel of Mark? Jesus begins to heal people. If Peter is successful at prolonging a movement that has no business being prolonged, then people are going to miss the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. What is Peter doing? Peter is putting too much emphasis on the rock star preachers that are there instead of putting the emphasis on the deity of God that's standing right before him. What... (laughs) I'm trying not to chase a lot of, like, go into the weeds with a lot of this in this passage, but I just have to say, like, how many of us as Christians, we go for the biggest speaker, we go searching for some grand, you know, pastor or speaker, or like, who's the next up and coming communicator? Let's go listen to their podcast, let's go listen to them. And we've placed an unrealistic expectation on them. They'll never be Christ. And I, honey, I'll never be Christ. We cannot have this idea that there is a such thing as a celebrity pastor. Those two words just do not mix. And if you are following someone who has the status of a celebrity pastor, run. It's about them. It's not about Jesus. Peter's trying to make something about Elijah and Moses. In fact, he's probably thinking of the festival of tents or the feast of tents. Um, the tabernacles, where they would take and go out and tent, camp out in a tent for a week to commemorate the time that they were in the wilderness and they were camping out. Maybe Peter thought of that. I don't really know. And so Jesus doesn't respond. But notice who does respond. In Old Testament, when someone is, is talking out of hand or someone is doing something they shouldn't be doing. You know what happened to them sometimes? Like if you, I think of the story of the Ark of the Covenant when they're handling the presence of God and, and one of those morons wants to just go reach out and try to fix things on his own way and, and God just, just strikes him dead. You would think that Peter in his negligence and then his just kind of dumb statement, God would just strike him dead for just being stupid but God doesn't do that, does he? No, God is going to respond. They didn't respond to Peter's request, but God is going to respond. And he responds in such a fascinating way. And I don't want you to miss this. How, what happens? A cloud. A cloud appears. Where did we see a cloud before? Now, now in Old Testament, we, we have this word called Shekinah glory. This is what, this was the cloud, the presence of God. The presence of God was in a temple. The presence of God would, and if we think back, if we're talking about Moses, he was leading the children of Israel that had no clue where they were going. They were being led by a cloud. And then in, in their rebellion, in, like no to God, the cloud leaves. And it's it's fascinating. Where where does the cloud reappear? Does it reappear over the top of of the temple in Jerusalem? Does it appear over the Pharisees and the religious elite? No, the the cloud appears here with Jesus. Jesus. And that's very significant for us not to miss because in Jesus is the presence of God. Temples are not the way to access the presence of God no more. How do we, how do we access God? It's through Jesus. And the cloud comes and it appears not over a false religion, but now it appears to us in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That false religion cannot save you. That false religion is not the way to the Father. But here's that Shekinah glory, the glory and the manifest presence of God coming down and not just revealing himself in the way of a cloud, but the cloud speaks. And this is the fascinating thing. What does the cloud say? And who is the cloud's voice? God speaks. and He says some very f- fascinating, a couple of things. He tells him. he says, this is him. This is Jesus. Listen to him. This is my beloved son not saying that this is a creative being. This was a a title of deity. This is him. This, This is my son. Look at him. Take your attention off of the celebrity pastors for a second, Pastor Eli and Pastor Mo, and you put your attention right on Jesus where it needs to be because this is who it's about, and you listen to him. And I, I love this in verse 8, and I, I progressively get faster maybe, and suddenly looking around them, they, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only, I love those two words, those last two words, because it identifies us, it identifies what we follow, identifies the church and who we are after and what we are to make of, make much of, we are to make much of only Jesus. So the word of the Father comes down, and God says, you look to Jesus. You want a way to eternal life? Look to Jesus. You want to know who I am? Look to Jesus. And not just look at him, but listen to him. And then 9 through 13, and I'm almost done, 9 through 13 tells us what happens after after the fact that this happens, these would J- Peter, James, and John, and you gotta understand this has gotta be a really solid, awkward moment. You know, again, you're 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 probably like Peter, you don't know what to say. And so what are you gonna do? You're gonna say something stupid again. You know, I kinda thought oh Elijah was supposed to come. You know I mean <laughs> you got hey I don't know if I uh, you know, thank God I, I have no um deity in me thankfully, because I would have just slapped him into the afterlife at this point because, really, you've just seen the glory, the revelation of God revealed, like, like radiantly blowing through the skin of Jesus. And, 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 and you're, you, what, you remember what happened, to, what they said about Elijah? I, I mean, at this point, you know, I, I'm, I'm, if I didn't know the rest of the story, I would think that um, it went bad, because who, who was going to start the church? That, that idiot? Who said that? You're, you're worried about Elijah, and you're not worried and concerned about literally seeing the transfiguration of Jesus for who he has been for all of eternity, and you're asking about Elijah. And, and what does Jesus do? He draws it back to the point of everything, that I'm going to suffer I'm going to go to a cross, and you are not to say anything about it until after the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, this does not make sense for them. Without the resurrection of Christ, sinners, unbelievers remain condemned. And without the resurrection, suffering doesn't make any sense. Without the resurrection, nothing makes sense. Jesus draws them back to this understanding of the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus says when men have done the worst thing they think they could ever do, who has the last word? God does. God has the last word. So they get bold, and Elijah is still in their brain and this is, this is what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter, the last book, the last few verses of, of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus is just thinking, y'all, you guys just be tripping on this idea of Elijah. You need to be talking about the suffering and the crucifixion and the resurrection that's about to take place. And Jesus tells them, yeah, you know, Elijah did come. It was the spirit of Elijah through John the Baptist because we know because Jesus says, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. At this point in the story in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist has already been de- be- beheaded. Now, just a couple of closing thoughts, and I, I promise you I'll be done. They're playing a horror th- movie in there in a little bit, and i got to hurry and get your kids out. Um partially a joke. Actually, it's not. I want you to look at a couple just quick things. Uh, The first, um, which by the way, if you have a million dollars, you can donate to us and we can get out of here. But until then, we'll be... We'll be right here in the movie theater. This, this is the first thought that I had when I, when I was going through this text, is that this strength, this endurance that they're talking about, that following Christ means sometimes you have to suffer, which is what he just said six days prior to this in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he says, for anyone who are following me, you will have to pick up your cross. That sometimes that following Jesus looks like you have to suffer. But I want you to see the good news in all of this, that there's a promise to those who suffer, that Jesus kept trying to draw them back, that, that because of the resurrection, you will have a glory, because of the resurrection, that there is going to be a glory that will await you. So suffering and pain for the believer is not the end story for the believer, it's, it's just an asterisk in your life, in the scale of eternity. I was talking to our CBI students this week, and I was giving them a proper theology of suffering. And it just draws back for those of us who are believers. This is what Paul says, if you're suffering, if you're going through trials, it's just a light and momentary affliction compared to the weight of eternity that awaits you so that when I step in eternity with Christ forever, all of the pain, all of the trauma that I endured, all of the suffering, like it just fails to compare to what I have in Christ in that moment with him in eternity. And I know that it's difficult for some of us to wrap our minds around right now. But if you are in Christ, the promise of God for you is that always after suffering, and it may not be here in this life, eternity of glory awaits you. And you got to remember who Mark is writing to, suffering Christians. And they see this, and the light bulbs come off, and they see that without a resurrection of Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ rising from the dead, then my suffering has no meaning. And they see this, and they see that when Paul writes to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 or 28, and when he says, All things work together for those who love him. All things, the good things, the bad things, that for some reason, somehow, God makes good of those things. And it may not be on this side of eternity. But if you are in Christ, glory awaits you. Speaking of metamorphosis, which we weren't speaking of it just then, I remember reading, I don't remember when I read this, I was thinking about dumb caterpillars and, and, and butterflies, and there was a there was scientific study. Scientists wanted to see what would happen if they intervened in the process of metamorphosis, what would happen to the caterpillar when it would morph into a butterfly? And the result was staggering. The caterpillar turned into a butterfly, but the butterfly could not fly. And they concluded that the reason why the butterfly could not fly is because it did not go through the suffering process of metamorphosis. In your suffering, glory always is your end if you are in Christ. Quickly, the last thing that just stands out to me, and, it, and, it, and I hope it stands out to you, is, is the voice of God. You know, anytime the audible voice of God speaks, you better be on attention. You better be on alert. It's, it's not, uh, you know, uh, oh, God spoke to me. You know, he just audibly spoke to me. It's terrifying to have the audible voice of God in almost every instance when God is audibly speaking to his people, what do they do? They fall down. Why? Because they're terrified. Have you ever been in a room and heard a loud voice speak to you and just be like, oh yeah? Tell me more. No, you're going for the Glock, baby, because that is not normal. And so when the voice of God, when you see that the voice of God appeared and spoke, you better listen. And he just gives them two commands. And it is a command that resounds 2,000 years later after it is spoken. And it is the last time, I believe, that the audible voice speaks in the Bible. Because we, know we, we don't need anything else to be said. Because everything, the way our life moves, the way we think, the way we move, the way we act, centers around these two things look to Christ. And listen to Christ. That's it. Look to Christ and listen to Christ. Look to Jesus, not your situations. Look to Jesus, not the celebrity pastors that are up here with him. Look to Jesus, not all of the you know, not all of the other things that are vying and and, and, and commanding for your attention. You look to Jesus. And not only are we, 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 our eyes gazed upon the majesty and the glory of Jesus, but we're listening to his word. We're not listening to culture. We're not listening to what the world says is right. We're not even listening to our own heart. I mean, I hate to kick you in the shins with that one. You are listening to the word of Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus and listen to his word. I've run over my time. I'm going to pray for us this morning.